0: All right, good morning again. Why don't you grab a Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. For the month of December, we're doing a little sermon series on one verse. I started this last Sunday, and I challenged you to memorize Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. It's a short verse, so it's a really easy memorization challenge, and I know you can do it. But as you memorize, as you read through, as you reflect on and meditate on this text, I want you to come to realize the depth of what Paul is writing here in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come. We're going to talk about that phrase the Sunday before Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. That's what we talked about last week. God sent his son. God is a sending God. He's always been a sending God, sending Abraham and Moses and all the prophets, and now he sends his son. And then the next statement is what you see on the PowerPoint. It says, God sent his son born of a woman, and then it says, born under the law. Our focus this morning during the sermon is going to be that part of Galatians 4.4, born of a woman. Just four words, and we're going to develop the whole sermon around it. Just four words seems simple enough, but man, this is a loaded statement. You know, at face value, you look at this verse, uh, born of a woman, and you think, well, how else can anybody else, can anybody come to this earth? But to be born of a woman, that's how we all come to earth. So it makes sense. Jesus was born. Mary was his mom. She gave birth to him. You could read uh, the gospel accounts and see that story. So it makes sense on that level, but if we get a little bit deeper, we have to think about this is the Son of God or God the Son being born. So I've been thinking about this phrase all week, walk a mile in someone's shoes. How many of you have ever heard this or used this before? Probably everybody, right? Walk a mile in someone's shoes. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean to literally put on somebody's shoes, and go walk a mile. If you've done that, you misunderstood what it means. To walk a mile in someone's shoes is to place yourself, you know, in their shoes in the sense that you are placing yourself uh, in their perspective, and you get a chance to look at life and look at circumstances through somebody else's lens. Walk a mile in their shoes, do what they do, and then when you do that, you might understand them better. So maybe, if you think about somebody at work, or at school, or in life, or family, we just had the holidays, we have Christmas coming up, maybe you think of somebody that really irritates you. Do you have somebody like that in your life? I'm sure we all do. What if you walked a mile in their shoes? What if you placed yourself in their shoes? Would it help you understand them better? Possibly. Maybe you can understand why they make those annoying jokes, maybe you can understand why they have the insecurities that they do, if you walk in their shoes for just a little bit, you might have some more compassion. So in a sense, Jesus being born of a woman, Jesus coming to this earth, the incarnation, Jesus walked more than just a mile in our shoes. God took on flesh and became a human being. He came to our level. So I've been studying this phrase, walk in someone's shoes," I studied on the internet trying to discover where did this phrase originate. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but if you Google it, the main thing that comes up, can you guess? Elvis Presley. I think I heard one person say it. Elvis Presley apparently has a song called Walk a Mile in My Shoes. And from all of my research, all I could discover was that Elvis came up with this saying. So I'm giving Elvis credit for it. I think I just saw somebody shake their head no, but that's where I'm going with it, because I stopped my research there. And a part of researching the sermon on the way home from dinner last night, I looked this song up on the Internet, and I played it in the car, and the kids seemed to like it. It's a catchy song. So I guess Elvis came up with this idea of walking in someone else's shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. And in Galatians 4, in verse 4, Paul says that God sent his son born of a woman. Not only does Jesus walk in our shoes, he goes the whole way. He starts as a baby. He starts at birth. So what does it mean for God to be born? Well, over the next few minutes, I want to take you through a few scriptures in the New Testament. And I want to try to unpack a little bit this phrase and maybe what we can understand of what we call the incarnation, of what we call God becoming a human. And we're going to start in John chapter 1, because I think John 1, Philippians 2, um, and then Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, in Colossians 1, what we read our scripture meeting, reading this morning, those passages help us understand in a fuller sense what Paul's saying here by being born of a woman. So start in John chapter 1 and verse 1. Some of these will be on the PowerPoint. Some of them may be hard to read, so you can follow along in your Bible if you would like. John chapter 1 and verse 1 John starts with these words, in the beginning. What does that sound like? That's Genesis 1-1. So John is writing his gospel, and it's basically a remix of Genesis. And He says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. The Word is this Greek word logos, or logos, however you'd pronounce that. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. That's from a New Revised translation. Who is the Word? Who is John referring to as the Word? Everybody say Jesus. Usually you're right, Jesus. What John is referring to here is Christ himself. In the beginning was the Word. He was with God. He was God. He's with God in the beginning. That's A very high Christology, that's thinking of Jesus and saying he was fully God. He wasn't just created when he was born, he existed before them, he existed in creation. And then if you were to keep reading in John chapter 1, in verse 14, John makes this very famous statement, and the word, the capital W word, became flesh and lived among us. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And then the rest of that verse, he says, We have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So in John's Gospel, before John ever refers to Jesus as the Son, or God's Son, or God the Son, he first refers to Jesus as the Word. Because what John is wanting the reader to understand is that Jesus is fully God. As mysterious as that is, as hard as that is to wrap our minds around, God himself, the word, took on flesh and dwelled among us, lived among us. See, by the time John wrote his gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written several years before, and they had already circulated all around the churches, so John knew about the other three gospels. So that's why John is so different, because when he writes the story of Jesus, the life and teachings of Jesus, he's able to give us a different perspective. So John doesn't start his gospel with the birth story of Christ. If you were to read Matthew and Luke, you would see what we typically read around Christmas time, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, the nativity scene, the manger, the star, fleeing to Egypt and Herod and his involvement and what's going on, why they have to go to Bethlehem. That's what you read about in Matthew and Luke. But John doesn't take that route. John goes in a different direction to explain the incarnation. The Word was from the beginning. The Word was God. The Word was with God. And the Word became flesh, fully God and fully human. There's an ancient philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he wrote this parable called the parable of the king and the maiden. I've been, I heard this parable about 10 years ago, and I've been drawn to it ever since, especially when I think about John chapter 1 or I think about the incarnation. And the parable goes like this. He said there was once a powerful king, the most powerful king in all of the world. He had all the power. All other kings were subject to him. But this king... Through observing the villages that he owned, that he was in charge of, he noticed a woman in a village, just a common person, and he thought she was beautiful, and he fell in love with her, he observed her, and then he said to his advisors one day, you know that woman that I keep talking about? I want you to go get her because I want her to be my wife, I want her to be my queen. His advisor said, okay, We can do that because you're the king and you can do whatever you want, but I want you to keep this in mind. She'll come because she has to, because she's obligated to, but you'll never really know if you actually have her heart. And the king said, okay, that's a good point. He thought about it and he said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to travel to her village. I'm going to show up at her house. I'm going to knock on her door and I'm going to ask her politely if she will come and be my queen. And the advisor said, you could do that too because you're the king and you can do whatever you want. And he said, but when you travel, you have all these chariots and horses and soldiers. And he said, there's going to be so much commotion in that village. And when the king himself shows up at your door, she's going to be so overwhelmed. Of course she's going to say, yes, you're still going to have the same problem. You're not really going to know if you truly have her heart. So the king thought about it some more, and he said, I know what I need to do. And he took off his crown, he took off his robe, he set down his staff, he took off his ring, and he said, I'm going to go move into her village, dress like a common person, live like a common person, live among her people, and I will win her over as an equal. He said, I don't want to violate her free will, so I'm going to take this risk, the risk of love, to win her over as an equal. She won't even know that I'm the king. This is the parable that Soren Kierkegaard tells, and often when people read that parable, they think of John chapter 1. They think of the incarnation. The king, the creator, the word, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, takes on flesh and dwells among us, fully God and also fully human. The apostle Paul hits on this in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, this is known as the Christ kingdom. And you've probably heard it read before. I'm going to read Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. It'll be on the PowerPoint. I'm not sure how well you can see that. But Paul, writing to this church in Philippi, says your mind, your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus. And in verse 6 he says, Who though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited." Think about what Paul is writing there in verse 6. He's in the form of God, equality with God, but he didn't exploit that. And then in verse 7, he emptied himself. This emptying himself is the Greek word kenosis. He's a form of God, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in these very famous words from Paul himself to the church in Philippi, what Paul is trying to get across is that Jesus is equal with the Father. Yet, he didn't exploit that. Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on flesh and becoming... A human being, so Paul is trying to express the same thing that John was trying to express that in some mysterious way that's beyond our comprehension, Jesus was both fully God and fully human. I read this story about a, a Hindu man who he didn't believe in Christ, but he had several friends who were Christians. And one of the reasons, one of the biggest barriers for him coming to the Christian faith and believing the Christian message was that he just could not believe that God would humble himself to become a human. That was the barrier for him. Well, this guy, I guess he's strange because he really liked ants. He liked to study ants. And if you like to study ants, I'm not calling you strange. I'm just saying the act of what you're doing is strange. You know, Just seeing this picture kind of creeps me out a little bit. But this guy loved ants, and he wanted to study ants. And so uh, he wanted to study the life pattern of ants and why they do what they do. And he was really frustrated one day because he said every time he bent over an ant mound, his shadow was cast over the ants, and they would scurry away. And he thought to himself in his frustration, the only way I'll ever be able to fully discover the life of an ant is to become an ant. And then he said, wait a minute. That's kind of like that Christian message and my Christian friends and what they talk about with the Word becoming flesh, with God becoming a human being. And so it sent him on a different path to start reconsidering the Christian message, and that eventually led to his conversion. But the biggest barrier for him was at first coming to grips with the fact that God would take on flesh and become a human, being born of a woman, the Word becoming flesh. Equal with God, but not exploiting that and take, emptying himself, taking on in the form of a slave, of a servant, of a human being. And then we get to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews is written like a letter, but or actually we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1 to read this passage. Uh, Hebrews is a word of exhortation, so the book of Hebrews is really a sermon. This is somebody's sermon. So he starts the sermon off like this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, or by the son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory. And he is the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The way the Hebrew writer starts his letter, starts his sermon, is with high Christology, with it talking about the Son, capital S, Jesus himself. And he says, the Son is the exact imprint of God's very being. Some of your translations say he's the exact representation. So it's very similar to what Paul is trying to say in Philippians two, what Paul's trying to say in Colossians chapter one, what John's saying in John chapter one is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the exact representation, the exact imprint of who God is. But then you get to Hebrews chapter two, And the Hebrew writer is also trying to express that he was fully God and fully human. In Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 14, we'll kind of skip around verses 14 through 18. He writes, since the children share flesh and blood, since they have flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things. So he's saying, as human beings, as God's children, we have flesh and blood. We live inside these bodies And the Son, who is the exact representation of God's being, shared in our humanity. And then if you look down at verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Some translations say he became like his brothers in every way. When I was working on my undergrad at ACU many, many years ago, I took the book of Hebrews as one of my Bible classes. It was taught by a guy guy named uh, James Thompson. He was a a New Testament scholar, a Greek scholar, and he was well-known for all the books that he had written on the book of Hebrews. So it was a hard class. Uh, It wasn't my favorite class, but one of the things that James Thompson was known for was that when he would read the Bible, when he would stand in front of the class, he wasn't reading from an English translation. He brought the Greek text up there with him and translated as he read. That's what, that's who was teaching, that was who was giving us our tests. So the, the tests weren't easy, the papers we had to write weren't easy. But I'll never forget the day that we were going through Hebrews 2, we were going through it slowly, and when we read verse 17, I guess it was all kind of flooding over me at this point, point. and when we read that, he became like his brothers, like his brothers and sisters in every way, and I had to raise my hand and ask a few questions. It's like it finally hit me. I was like, wait a minute, are you saying, I I know Jesus, I know he was a human, I know he's God in the flesh, it's mysterious, it's hard to understand, but are you saying he became like us in every way? Like when he stumped his toe, it hurt. When he got a stomach virus, he had to throw up just like we have to throw up. Like he had to go through the same types of things that we went through? And he said yes. And for whatever reason, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, was a life changer for me. It helped me grow with this love and appreciation in my relationship with Christ, realizing that he became like us in every way. And then the rest of verse 17, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And then in verse 18, it says, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested because he became like us in every way because he took on flesh and blood he's able to help us help those who are being tested he's able to help us because he knows what it's like to be human so the hebrew is trying to do the same thing that paul was doing trying to do the same thing that john was doing expressing to us that jesus was both fully god and fully human it's difficult to understand Maybe some of you remember this guy named Joe Torrey. Anybody remember him? He was the manager for the New York Yankees. I know we probably don't have any Yankees fans in here. But when I was a kid growing up, and even, I guess, at college age, maybe beyond, I can't remember when Joe Torrey retired, he was the manager for the New York Yankees. And the story goes that when he was hired to be the manager, somebody suggested to him that he could manage, he could coach, he could do all the things that you're supposed to do as a manager from the press box. He could go up into the broadcaster's booth and he could see over the whole field, he could watch on the screen the game, he could still call down into the dugout and give the calls and give the signals, but he doesn't have to be down there with the players. And his response was, when you're up high, you can't look them in the eyes. So he chose to manage from the dugout because he wanted to be down there among the players. So when he makes decisions to pull a pitcher out or whatever it may be, he can look in their eyes and he can see what's going on inside of them. And it's not that God couldn't see us, God has always been able to see us. But in the fullest sense, as Jesus takes on flesh, as Jesus is born of a woman and becomes a human being, he gets on eye level. And he's right there among us. So back to this passage in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son, born of a woman. Jesus started the same way that we all do. He was born. And Jesus had to learn how to crawl, And then walk, he had to learn how to talk, Jesus suffered, Jesus had to deal with people just like we have to deal with people. He had family life, he had social life, he had synagogue life, he had to suffer, he had pain, and he even had to endure death. So when Paul says, born of a woman, that's a loaded statement. That's almost impossible for us to fully comprehend the mystery of what's taking place there. But I think we know enough through Scripture As we try to wrestle with and balance this idea of being fully God and fully human to appreciate that God's plan of salvation begins there with God sending and not just zapping him down on earth but he was born of a woman. So when I study a text like this and I contemplate the theology and what's going on in our Bibles and how do we understand this, one of the things that I'm always thinking is how do we apply it? What does it mean to us? How do we live something like this out? Do we just accept it as a gift or should it change how we live? So one of the things that I've thought about this week is, based on what we're studying here, how can I be more like Christ this week? As we study the incarnation, as we study God being born, God becoming one of us, What do we learn from this and how can we be more like Christ? And the first thing I want to challenge you with this week is to think about this. Practice incarnational thinking with someone this week. This is kind of that concept, back to that phrase, walk a mile in someone's shoes. Place yourself in someone else's shoes. Practice incarnational thinking. And let me use this as an example to help you think about this. A little while back, my wife, Jessica, was gonna be gone for a few days. Which means that I had the kids by myself. Which is no big deal, because after all, I am their dad. When she got ready to leave, she made a list of everything that I needed to do on each day and gave times and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is really comprehensive here. We'll, we'll follow it loosely and do the best we can. <laughs> and as she got ready to leave, the last thing she said to me was, Can you handle this? And I'm like, yes, I'm their dad. So she leaves. I picked up Addie from school. I I normally don't take her to school or pick her up from school. I work. She does all the things with the kids. And so I went to pick up Addie from school, which getting my son loaded up and getting there on time, that's a lot more difficult than I realized. I got her home. We did the homework. Then I started following the list at that point. But I had this idea that I'm going to be a cool dad, and I'm going to take him to see a movie on a school night. So I'm going to cook dinner early, we'll eat, and then we're going to go watch this 5.30 movie. So I got a frozen pizza out, a frozen pizza. You preheat the oven at 400, whatever it tells you to do. And then when the oven's preheated, you put a pizza in, you set a timer, and that's literally all you have to do. So I did that. I followed the steps exactly. I don't do a lot of cooking. And a few minutes into it, I noticed that there was smoke coming out of the oven, but I, I'm not used to cooking, so I thought, maybe this is normal. I'm not real sure. And I let it go for a few more minutes, and then before I knew it, there, I'm not kidding, there was smoke all in our kitchen and in our living room. We had to open all the windows and get fans to blow the smoke out. <laughs> I don't even have to make a joke. You just we laugh at a microphone popping. So we ate the pizza anyways because... Uh, That was all I had prepared. It was a little bit burned, but we ate it. We got to the movie on time. You know, my daughter, growing up, had watched this cartoon called Dora the Explorer. It's a nice little cartoon. They teach you Spanish. Seems great. Nice, kid-friendly movie. So we go see this movie, and then I'm surprised it's not a cartoon. It's like real-life human beings playing the roles of Dora. And I brought my 3-year-old son to see this movie, and they're trying to survive in a jungle... And there's a lot of near-death experiences that take place. So my 3-year-old son winds up in my lap with his head buried in my shoulder because he's afraid. And all I can think is maybe I shouldn't have done this and taken him to this movie. So within one night, I burned the food, smoked up the house, taken him to see a movie I probably shouldn't have taken him to see. And then I get him to bed, and then all of a sudden the alarm's going off and it's time to do it again. I get him up, get him to school, get him dressed, make sure I don't forget anything. So when Jessica got home, I told her, Okay, I have a greater appreciation for what you do. It may not change how I behave. I may stay further away when it comes to picking up the kids from school. I'm joking. But I really, I told her I had to walk a little bit in her shoes. And when doing that, it gave me a greater appreciation for what she does. And I'm still working on trying to become a better husband. But if we want to practice incarnational thinking, God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, going the whole route, being born of a woman, maybe some, with somebody this week, we could practice some incarnational thinking. Maybe it's somebody you work with, you go to school with, a family member, maybe it's even your spouse. But what if you just tried placing yourself in somebody else's shoes and trying to truly understand where they're coming from and why they do what they do, and maybe it'll lead to a little bit more compassion and understanding and increase your love for that person. And the second thing I want to challenge you to do is to pray and reflect on the incarnation. Sounds simple, but I'm challenging you to pray and reflect on the incarnation when you're the most worn out this week. If you're breathing, if you have a pulse, there's probably a really good chance That there's going to be a time during your week when you're going to have a headache, when you're exhausted, when you have a lot of work to do, when life feels hopeless, when you feel like you're about to burst. I mean, we probably all experience this at some point during our week, every week. And when you feel that way, just spend a few minutes praying and thanking God that He knows what it's like. He knows what we're going through, and according to Hebrews 2.18, He's able to help us. Because of the incarnation, because of the Word becoming flesh, He knows what we're going through. And so maybe we could just pray and reflect on that, and when we're at our weakest moment, thank God that He knows what we're going through. If you kept reading in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4 and verse 15... The Hebrew writer says he's not unable to sympathize in our weaknesses because he knows what it's like, and he says, yet he was without sin. So in those moments when I'm at my weakest and when we're frustrated and worn out and we feel like we can't take anymore, Jesus also is a reminder that it's not an excuse to indulge or to live in sin because Jesus went through it all, yet he was without sin. So we look to Jesus as our guide and our hope, and maybe this week we can reflect Christ with the way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we treat people. And I will point this out because I've mentioned this walking a mile in someone's shoes, that the purpose of the incarnation wasn't just so that God could identify with us. The purpose of the incarnation was so that being born of a woman living as a human being, someday he would die on a cross. And he does that as an atonement for our own sins. If you're at a place in your life where you've never received Christ, you've never been baptized into Christ, I hope that you prayerfully consider that step, that spiritual milestone in your life today. If you need to be prayed for, If you have any requests, we have elders around this room who would be glad to pray with you and meet with you right now. And it looks like maybe here in just a minute we're going to have a baptism, one. Okay, so we'll stick around for that. So I want to invite you to stand. If you need to respond to the invitation, you can do that now. Let's stand and sing.